There's just one headline I want to call attention to at the opening of this session. It's in the Henderson Gleaner, as well as the Evansville paper, which Brother Granville brought. Saudis propose new Mideast peace plan. I don't know how many of you read this, but I'm going to read to you a couple of paragraphs. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Faud proposed a new Mideast peace plan saying Arab states would recognize Israel's right to, quote, live in peace, unquote, if Israel allows the creation of a Palestinian state. Israeli reaction was mixed. Uh, Israeli tele television quoted members of Prime Minister Begin's cabinet as saying the plan was, quote, a turning point. The unidentified minister said Fowd's statement was the first time the Saudis have said they were willing to recognize the Jewish state. One Israeli minister was quoted as saying, quote, indeed, the conditions are the most radical and are totally unacceptable to Israel. But the readiness to recognize Israel must be viewed as a fundamental change in the Saudi position. Let's more to the article. Go home and read it if you have paper. Now, what's so significant about that? Well, that's what our lesson's going to be about this morning. And we're going to come back to some of the developing signs a little later in the lesson because they tie in so significantly with our lesson today. And we have some other clippings Brother Granville was thoughtful enough to bring in that connection. Turn to uh, our study booklet because we're going to consider letter I this morning. What significant time phrase occurs seven times in Zechariah 12? Now, that's necessary, therefore, we find the necessity to read uh, Zechariah 12, 1 to 11, which is assigned for this, uh, this lesson. And we haven't read it yet. Zechariah 12, 1 to 11, please, uh, for our reading. We begin to answer our question as to what is significant about those headlines in that statement. Suppose we begin with you, Brother Grandis. 12.
chapter 14 and read the first five verses. Chapter 14. Had you made a, this is personal, had you made a special request to Calvin over at this Indian? I'm glad to see that. But he tended to be a little bit critical, you know, and, uh, well, he commented uh, maybe on the amount of printers there, you know, things like that. No, I, I, I claim this is printing out. It simply hasn't gotten on to our, our ways and so forth. You know, last week we considered H, the letter H, about the relationship between the time period of 2300 day years and the time times and a half of Daniel 7. I, as I listened to that tape, I couldn't help but be sympathetic toward those that were possibly hearing what we discussed for the first time because in properly answering this question it necessitated going way back into ancient history when these time periods began and of course history is a, is a is a document of things that have already occurred but it it did take us into some uh, thought concerning what these things meant in our day and beyond now this morning, in answering uh, the thought or question of what significant time phrase occurs seven times in Zechariah 12, 
We're going to consider more of contemporary uh, happenings, which, which don't date back too far. But uh, to understand uh, these chapters, we ha have to consider uh, certain things that have come to pass and that are very, very much related to the outworking of God's plan. Now, the question is asked, what significant time phrase occurs seven times in Zechariah 12? Uh, who's prepared to tell us offhand what that phrase is? Now, I, I don't know how many of you heard that. I, I couldn't find but six times that that was uh, in this particular chapter, verse 12. Well, that's true. Uh, that's true. I didn't do my counting. Yeah, understand. At that day and in that day, yes. That isn't the important point. The important point is that it is there, and the question comes out of that, is this a regular, ordinary day, as we think of, of 24 hours in that day? Is it? No. The very consideration of the various verses that it's in, 3, 4, 6, 8, 9, and 11 that we read, indicates there are a great many events that are spoken of in that day. So, uh, uh, our understanding of, of language and the meaning of words would tell us that it encompasses a, a long period of time as we might measure time. It might require a generation for these things to uh, be fulfilled in. So it's not an ordinary day. It's a, as Julie said, it's related to that phrase in Zechariah 14. The day of the Lord. All right, chap. I, I, I wouldn't be able to explain the difference myself. Maybe so. Maybe so. I, I don't know the difference between in or at in that case. I, I, I haven't looked this up in the original. Maybe you're correct. All right. Uh, considering that, no, I don't think it, it, there's room for that. I, I think we have to realize that in this scripture we read, there is held out to us certain things that are going to happen. Some things, we might say, give indication that they've already begun to happen. And we're going to, we're going to come to that because we're asked questions later in the lesson. So we have then uh, a, a series of events, one taking place uh, at the same time as the other and some following on the other, that the Lord is at work because it's equated, we can equate it, with the day of the Lord. 
and it would indicate that certain events are happening under, to use your word, specific control and brought about by the outworking of God in his purpose, in his plan with events taking place that lead to the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. And that's, that's what we're going to direct our mind toward. So, it's not a day of 24 hours. It's a period of time. Now we're going to turn to another chapter which speaks of these two phrases very well. Turn to Isaiah. The second chapter we're going to begin reading at the 10th verse. And this, we will see, also includes mention of the day of the Lord, the same day of the Lord, and I also believe of it, it's also in that day, uh, in verse 20. So let's read it uh, and see what's going to happen. Uh, as is recorded here in this day of the Lord, this period of, of in that day. We begin reading at verse 10. Notice here, it speaks of this day of the Lord in this connection. Let's go on. significant events occurring here in uh, this particular context. Uh, it concerns the Lord's work in the earth in connection with the events which are necessary to take place in this earth in order to convince 
those people that live through it, that the Lord is working specifically and directly with mankind. We, we notice certain phrases here that are, that are very significant. In verse 11, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. That's repeated several times in this, in this chapter. In verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And uh, the, uh, the uh, admonition of verse 21, go into the cliffs of the rock and into the tops of the ragged rocks, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth. So, it's one of those things that we may not want to think about. There are several times in history when the Lord has arisen and manifested himself, but this seems to be a, a direct and uh, outpouring of God's indignation upon men in order to bring some of them to him in humility, in recognition of his greatness, and in recognition of their need to obey him. It's unfortunate that it takes this, but it does, and it will. Now, turn over to Joel for a, a, a couple of other significant uh, phrases here. Joel is one of those one of those uh, books that hide over in the Minor Prophets. Comes between uh, Amos and and uh, Hosea. We're going to read a couple of verses here. Third chapter. And this is a proclamation that is a, a, a little more specific, yet it concerns the same time period. Begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 3 in Joel, please. At verse 9.
Now, that's, that's sufficient for uh, our purpose. Here we are, are given further events that are to take place in this day of the Lord. As is indicated in verse 14, for the day of the Lord is near. So we have the same time period. Verse 18, yes, comes down to that. We didn't read 18. But we have the same time frame here. And, uh, and other events that are set before us. The proclamation of war among the Gentile nations. They are to prepare war. Are they doing that? Unquestionably. So in that context, we, we perhaps have entered this period to some extent. We'll see other ways we have too. And uh, they're told to beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. They're to prepare uh, very earnestly for this. One of the items which Brother Granville handed me, Reagan approves neutron weapons. That is a preparation that is directly related to that verse 9 because the neutron weapon is a weapon of complete annihilation of people uh, that are uh, under uh, that are, it is poured out on and it's a further indication that the nations are doing just what they're told to do right here prepare war and to beat their plowshares into swords now when we get down to verse 16 we see a specific city mentioned that this thing concerns uh, and the Lord's uh, uh, vengeance being directed from that city. What city is it? Jerusalem. Then shall the Lord also shall roar out of Zion, in other words, and order his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But there is a, a, a final, very, very fine outworking of this that we can take comfort in. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. And that's what the faithful person today that's trying to do God's will and follow in the steps of Christ takes comfort in that the outworking of all this is for a, a good purpose. Now the, the present consideration of, of these verses that we've read undoubtedly cause our minds to be directed to the Middle East which this, this map will uh, give us uh, it's an ancient map, map of uh, the ancient world but it's a map also of the Middle East and the ancient names there are to be discounted and the present name substituted when we think about it now what people today are in occupancy of most of these lands of the Middle East? What people? The Arabs. They occupy 98%, maybe 99% of the geographical area of this country, of this region, extending all the way over into North Africa and, 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 and along over that way. 
So any consideration of these verses brings two people before us, the Arabs, and who else? The Jews. And they are such a little country that the name of their capital, Jerusalem, won't fit in in the printing to, to this map, in this map. It's so small. But these two people are brought before us in, in some of the scripture we've read here, particularly from Joel. The Jewish people and their holy city of Jerusalem and the Arab people are sworn enemies who today the Arabs are clamoring for possession of that city and the land, the little land that's occupied by the Jewish people in spite of the fact that those people control all this region. But they've got to have Palestine back. They, that's the name for it up to a few years ago. They've got to have that back. And they've got to have a little territory here that includes the city of Jerusalem. Or else they're not going to rest. They're not going to uh, uh, be satisfied with anything other than the reclamation of the land that the Jews drove them out of. Now this people have come to power in what we have to call the latter days. This is a latter day phenomenon. As nearby as 75 years ago, the Arab people were not even considered when the nations were being reckoned and when the earthly powers were being considered. Why? Because 75 years ago, the Arab people were a, a wretched, downtrodden people, a desert-wandering tribesman uh, for the most part, who followed the uh, grazing lands as they developed and uh, were under the rule of the most, uh, one of the most cruel nations that uh, existed at that time. They were under control of the Turks, whose empire reached uh, all around this region and included a great deal of what we call the Middle East. It was not, the Arabs were not, a nation in any way, shape, or form. They had no sovereign power. They were not self-ruled. As we say, they were ruled by the Turkish uh, uh, Ottoman Empire. Well, uh, <coughs> during World War I, 19, around 1916, 17, and 18, these people began to stir, they began to ferment in uh, their thinking. They foresaw the defeat, or hoped for, by, German, by uh, France and Britain. They foresaw the defeat of the Turks, who were allied with the Germans, for control of this region. The British and the French had troops in this region, particularly in Egypt. Uh, Britain had their troops. And they were working northward to drive the Turks out of this region. And they made certain promises to these Arab people if they got their help, that when the war was over, they'd do something for them. They'd make them a sovereign people. They'd give them nations in this region and uh, 
uh, they would uh, benefit greatly by becoming helpers to Britain and France in the war against the Germans and the Turks. Well, there was a complicating factor here. The British also needed the help of the Jewish people who lived uh, in, in their country. France also saw the need for the help of the Jewish people. And so, as we have discussed in other lessons, they made promises to the Jewish people that if they would help them, Britain and France would give them a certain homeland in this region, see that it was provided. And so the Balfour Declaration said that the British government looked with favor on the establishment of the land of Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Well, the Jews, because of their persecuted, scattered state, they began to take immediate advantage of this promise by Britain of going back to this land from the land of their oppressors. All of them didn't go back as we know. There are more Jews outside of Israel today than there are in Israel. But uh, they began to go back. And for a good many years, they went back very, very enthusiastically. They built up the land. They made, in certain respects, that land to blossom as the rose in certain areas. They built it up industrially, and they made it. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, highly industrialized and productive regions in, in the Middle East. There was no, no region to compare with. Well, the Arabs, when the Jews first started going back, 1919-20, the leaders welcomed them because they felt like the Jews would help them to build up the land. But as more Jews came in, the Arabs began to harden in their position against those Jews. And we know the outcome. The ancient tribal enmity of Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, together with Esau, that enmity began to arise again. And that hatred of Israel, the Jew, was reborn in the Arab people. And it kept on in their, in their hatred. They wanted Britain to take a position with them against the Jews and get them out of there. I think we ought to get it out of the way. The land of Israel was still known as Palestine. No now we come to World War II, which is approximately 20 some odd years after World War I. By World War II, in the year 1939, to 45, that war carried on. The Arabs, in that period of time, had attained to such power and prosperity, they might say, that several Arabic nations had come into being, had attained sovereign power in this region. Across the Jordan River in Jordan, the land of Transjordan, was, was, was created, and a king, and it today is known as Jordan. 
south of that the vast area here that this uh, fellow here was quoted as offering a new police plan from the Saudi Arabian power came into existence none of these people had any national sovereignty before uh, this time the Lebanese which we hear so much of today a little north of Israel here the Syrians uh, a terrible enemy of Israel came into sovereign uh, power with a capital in Damascus further over the Iraqis came into power and a bitter enemy of Israel and down here the nation of Libya who today is governed by one of the most radical thinkers in the world came into power as we uh, again emphasize none of these nations existed prior to 75 years ago they've all come into into uh, power since then and the British who were realists and who had great stake in this area for reasons that we should come to and know they became very apprehensive and tended to listen to the Arab rulers of these regions who said you are favoring the Jews too much in your promises and in your efforts to help them we demand that you get them out of there and cause their ambitions in that area for a land of their own to cease the significant thing is that the British began to forget their promise to the Jews. They began to forget how much the Jews had helped them, particularly one man, by being able to develop in, uh, through his chemical skill a, a very important uh, explosive that the British needed to fight the Germans. They tended to forget their promise to establish Jewry in a national home, and they turned to the Arabs instead. Why? Well, one reason is because it was God's plan, just that way. But there was a more natural reason. The development of the internal combustion engine, and every one of you that drove out in here in a car got here because you had an internal combustion engine that ran on oil and gasoline. And when that engine was invented, it changed the needs of the world, particularly the Western world. Their machinery, their transportation, everything else was powered by the oil, and that oil lay in vaster quantities under those Arab lands than anywhere else in the world. And therefore, it made to the Western world over here that ran on oil and gasoline, it made this land and this region, these lands and this very important. And that's the reason Britain, in looking to her own interests, felt that it was wiser to back the Arabs and turn to them and begin to give in to their demands to get Israel out of there and the Jews out of there than they would have otherwise. That was the hand of God. For doing it, Britain lost its empire. In accordance with the Abrahamic promise, I will bless him that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. 
because of that oil. The phenomenal development of this region, the growth and prosperity of the, Ab of the uh, Arab people today, so far, <laughs> there's nothing in history to compare with such a thing, such a phenomenon happening to a people in such a short period of time. It could only be the hand of God arranging such a thing as that. Their historical enmity of the Jewish people, as we said, it dates back to the days of Ishmael and Esau. And the state of Israel in its later development, beginning in 1948, when the Jews won their first war of liberation against the Arabs. Those same nations, round about, marched against them. And Israel defeated them. Again, that was the hand of God. And we feel like that is a part of in that day. The day of the Lord. It created a problem, however, for the, the Gentile world. They're consuming, the, the, that is, the, the consuming desire of the Arabs to destroy the state of Israel and to regain their control and rule over the city of Jerusalem, which they still say must come into their hands, has resulted in Jerusalem becoming the gravest, the status of Jerusalem has become the gravest problem that faces the nations of this world right today. And when we go back to uh, the scripture we read in Zechariah 12, we find that there would come a time that it directly says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. Now, what are the people round about Jerusalem? The Arabs, Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, if they have no... Libya, all of those nations today are clamoring for the destruction of Israel, the destruction of the Jewish state. It has presented to the United Nations the most insoluble problem they've ever had to deal with, and they've had to talk more about it the past few years than any other problem they had. And every time they talk about it, it becomes more difficult for them to iron it out. And the position of this country, in particular, is brought into bold relief when we think of two things. First, the traditional position of this country was very much like that of Britain, when Britain was a friend to the Jews. This country has been the only friend the Jewish people have had and has been, uh, has made possible the uh, development that have taken place in Israel the last few years by the thousands of millions of dollars that the Jewish people in this country have given to finance the development of the state of Israel. 
Many people don't know it. But the Jewish people in this country for many years, the Jewish uh, National Fund has contributed more money, more millions of dollars, to the Jewish state of Israel for its development than the American people contribute to the Red Cross. And that's something when you think about it. What is the position of this country? It's need of oil. We must have the oil. You who live out in the suburbs, of, or any, anybody that lives out in the suburbs, may find it very difficult to get to work one of these days. Why? Because the Arab people now have it within their power to withhold the oil of any country who does not bow down to their demands concerning the uh, uh, turning over to them or getting Israel to turn over to them the uh, uh, right to occupy a section of land in right in the midst of the middle part of the state of Israel over to the Jordan River known as the West Bank and then in the ancient times it was known as Judea and Samaria and it included the city of Jerusalem the demand of that Saudi prince that we read a while ago the Saudis have become a very powerful people in the destinies of this region and their proposals that they will let Israel live in peace if Israel turns over to them at the behest of the powers that can put the pressure on Israel if it turns over to them uh, this region that they want. And so we, we see that this burdensome stone of the destiny of Jerusalem and the destiny of the Jewish people and the place the Arabs have at this time and doubtless will continue to have in the affairs of the uh, developing things that are taking place in this region. We see its meaning when we begin to look at the background of the situation and the things that are taking place at this time. We, we, look, we look back at the verses. Well, there's a, there's a question asked which we may be answering right now. Uh, Jay, on your booklet, has any portion of Zechariah been fulfilled in our days? Well, we've been talking about that. Verses 2 and 3, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And in your margin uh, you have uh, slumber or poison, and it certainly is poison right now, unto all the people round about. They, the Arabs find it a, a bitter pill that they've lost control of the city of Jerusalem and that the Jews have it and they've sworn to get it back when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem in that day at that time are we are we seeing things come to pass then in our day that indicates we have approached the situation we're in it we may be in just the beginning of it but we're in it we're in that day Will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone to all people? And it is. 
All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though, and that doesn't mean they will, it's a comparison. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it, and that may come to pass. Now, we turn over for the siege of Jerusalem back to Zechariah uh, 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. This is a continuation of the events that have been introduced to us in Zechariah 12. It is a, what's known in grammar as a prolepsis. Uh, of which Zechariah 12 was an anticipation. And now we have what this will lead to. Thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Whose spoil? The next verse tells us, I will gather all nations. What nations? Those who are round about, the people round about. And we here are stating an opinion against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken. So it would appear then that the outworking, the possible outworking, when we go into the future, we want to impress you again with the fact we are not prophets. I'm not. I'm giving you an opinion based on the position of the Arab people today and their determination to crush the Jews and destroy the state of Israel. That is a reality. That is a thing they've been proclaiming for for years. We'll drive every Jew into the sea. So we're not talking about uh, flights of fancy. And the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravaged. Half the city shall go forth into captivity. What does that lead to? It leads to the greatest event that will have occurred in human history outside of the coming of Christ as a sacrifice 2,000 years ago nearly. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east, and so on. And ye shall flee, in verse 5, to the valley of the mountains. And we look at the last verse, uh, last part of that verse, the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Now, what indication is there that these, these events are going to involve this country and involve us as citizens of this country in some very significant things? Uh, I hope I have time to finish this. This is uh, the Worldgram that's published by the U.S. News and World Report. It's this week's Worldgram, last week's Worldgram. It's on the newsstand right now if you want to read it. But it tells something. Now that Ronald Reagan's economic package has cleared hurdles in Congress, count on the Middle East to be moved off the back burner in the White House. Allies and friends expect to hear at first hand Reagan's ideas on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, fighting in Lebanon. And here's something very significant. Soviet threats to the area. That's something we hadn't mentioned. We mentioned it last week. That Russia is keeping its eyes up here from the north, fixed on everything that happens down here, looking for any excuse to move into this area, which is adjacent to her now that she's moved into Afghanistan on the north. She's ready. 
for events to take place over here in Iran that would give her an excuse to move down here as a supporter of this Arabic Confederation and supplier and backer of their uh, efforts in to take control. Mideast leaders signed up so far for talks with the president are Egypt's Sadat. He's been here this week and tried to win the approval of Ronald Reagan for the Palestine Liberation Organization to be considered as a, as a national entity. He wasn't successful, we're glad to say. Israel's Begin will come, Jordan's King Hussein, and Saudi Arabia's, Saudi Arabia's Prince Saud. They're all to come for conferences with the president. Need for Reagan to lay out U.S. goals and strategy is obvious to all. Only a fragile ceasefire keeps Palestinians in Lebanon and Israelis from each other's throats. Even now, frontline Palestinians are getting more Soviet weapons, rockets to hit Israel, missiles for defense against aircraft. Israelis fume over suspended U.S. delivery of F-16 warplanes. Hardliners in Jerusalem go so far as to question how reliable U.S. might be in a pinch. Yet Arabs want Reagan to restrain Israel from ventures like the bombing of Beirut in, Ju in July, the destruction earlier of, of Iraqis of Iraq's nuclear reactor. They also demand that Arab, that America put pressure on Israel to deal with Palestinian rights. If anybody reads that and can't connect it up after what we've said with what's going on, uh, I wonder what we can do to help you to make the connection. We're living in it. We need to wake up to it. <laughs> we'll come back next week for continuation of this subject, the Lord willing.